blessed day to you all and a warm welcome to the Greylet Cafe podcast brought to you by Frontinus Limited. Frontinus is a communications consultancy focused on engineering, infrastructure, sustainability, and research. With you today is Inji Musa, political scientist and teaching associate at Cambridge University. And I'm very honored and pleased as usual to be accompanied by Mr. Anthony Haynes, creative director of Frontinus in the first edition of a new occasional series, which we are calling Behind the Scenes. In this series, we go behind the curtain to see what happens when a communications business like Frontinus works on a project. So what do they do? What kind of work goes on? And in this edition, we focus particularly on work on grand proposals. With me, I have Mr. Anthony Haynes again. Thank you, Mr. Anthony, for joining me today. Greetings, Inji. Pleased to be with you. Thank you. Uh, so to start, let me kindly ask, in what role do you and your business work on grant proposals? Well, it's a bit of a mixture. We do a lot of work on proposals. Um, a bit of the work we do, I would say, is as a consultant, advising on the overall approach, um, in part a reviewer, reading draft bits and pointing out strengths and weaknesses, a um, bit of a ghostwriter. Sometimes we, we actually <clears throat> write or, or completely rewrite parts of bits. And a bit of a mentor just explaining how to do the process as well as possible. But our main roles are actually editorial. And by that, I really mean two types of editorial. One is development editing, which is editing the overall shape and structure of things. So as a development editor, you find yourself saying, well, I think I think we've got too much material here. We ought to cut out 500 words. That's not really relevant. How about putting a couple of examples in here? Um, perhaps we should break this figure into two separate figures. Um, should we create a new section in the document here and so on? So it's very much shape and structure. Yeah. And then the second, second type of editing we do is what people probably think of as editing, really, which is uh, copy editing and proofreading, where you're looking at the, the, the minutiae, the detail, making sure that the grammar is correct, that the facts are correct, that the punctuation is correct, and so on. Wow, that's that's very interesting. And just to, to be fair, it might sound for some uh, some people that like proofreading is easy or, or copy editing is not that much of a big deal, but it is a huge deal. And I think it, it sometimes makes make kind of make it or break it in terms of uh, of piece of, of writing or a grant proposal in that respect. Okay, so when you start working on a grant proposal, let's say a team of scientists seeking funding for research or uh, an R&D project, what's the first step for you with them? The first step is for me to read the call, the, the invitation to bid mm -hmm. and the details of the scheme. And in particular, what I encourage people to do is to build up a checklist of all the requirements. So very often you find there's a mass of requirements that you have to meet in your bid. And often that information is dispersed amongst the documents that you have to read before you read the bid. So there might be requirements about formatting, you know, what size font to use and what size margin and how many words to have. And then there might be requirements about what kinds of information are required. And then there might be requirements about what kind of criteria you have to meet. And often there's a mass of this stuff and it's very easy to forget when you're actually writing a bid, which can be over a period of weeks, 
it's very easy to forget some of these requirements. So what I always uh, try to do with a client that I'm working with is say, let's build up a complete list of requirements collated from everywhere. And then at the end, they become a checklist and don't send the bid off until you've met all the requirements. I think I should say at this stage, one other thing about actually re when I said read the, the call for bids. The typical behavior is when, when there's a call for bids, for people to read the document, the call, the invitation to bid. And frankly, not, not much else. You know, that's that's what they read. What I do whenever I work on the bid is read around the call and try and read the context. Let me let me give you two uh, examples. I, I help some people bid for money from research councils funding scientific research. And a number of the research councils um, that are relevant here produce documents called strategy documents where they outline what their strategy for a few years is going to be in terms of funding research. And in my experience, researchers writing bids hardly ever read these documents. They look at them and think, well, they're just sort of boring bureaucratic documents. I'm not really interested in them. That's a mistake. Mm. I mean, they are boring bureaucratic <laughs> documents. I've read lots of them. They're boring. But they're very important to the organisation that's produced them. Mm. So you might think they're boring, but the research council or whoever produced them, they don't think they're boring. And what I would suggest is you try and uh, tie your bid in with their strategy and actually try and quote from a strategy document. Mm. So you actually say, you know, we note in chapter two or whatever of your strategy document, you say that a priority for funding is this. Well, that's what our bid does. And that has a, a very powerful effect on people because it shows that you're interested in them. It's a courtesy thing. That's very powerful. And it also makes it easier for them to support your bid because they think, actually, they're right, aren't they? Yeah, we did say we were going to provide funding for that. The second example, to make, just to make my answer even longer, uh, my second example is um, I was helping a group who were bidding for some money from a development bank. Mm. And they were bidding to develop a water supply in urban areas. And I'm always determined when I'm helping a client. I am absolutely determined. I'm going to find a relevant fact in the context that no one else has noticed. All right. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge I set myself. So I read through. I spent about two hours actually reading through documents from wow. this development bank. Yeah. And eventually I found it. Eventually I found this news item where they announced that they were keen to fund water supply projects, but they were shifting their focus from rural projects to urban projects. And as soon as you find that, you think, right, that's going to get quoted in our bid. Wow, interesting. I think maybe um, one thing to, to that I get from, from your answer is really about making your... Um, like or thinking of how to personalize your proposal from the from the very beginning and kind of when you are yes. building the proposal that, that thinking of your audience when they read whatever you are going to submit they feel that you are speaking to them and not speaking to the bed in particular um and definitely everyone likes to be spoken to right you don't you don't like to hear people just speaking in the air you want people to address you in in person so so i think that's very um, an excellent point yes indeed i'm interested that you highlight that because i think that's actually true of most forms of gray literature that if people sense that you're just giving them cut and paste mm. 
uh, that's that's not great. And in fact, one of my inspirations there is Sir Alex Ferguson, who used to be manager of Manchester United. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've heard people say about him is he learnt who every single person was. Wow. So when the Manchester United under 12 team turned up at the training ground, he knew all the names of the players and their parents. You know, and, and he press. knew the names of the wow. yeah, and the tea and the and the tea lady and the people serving in the canteen, wow. and he was helped uh, towards the end of his career. He was asked to help um, a golf team, the British Ryder Cup team in golf, and so he came and did a training session for the golfers. And obviously, he knew their names because <laughs> they're very famous people, but he knew all their caddies as well. And that's what they commented on, like, who is this guy? (laughs) (laughs) And and that sense of he's taken the trouble Mm. makes a big impression on people. Yeah, yes, indeed. Okay, so to sum up so far, we talked about reading closely the bit and the documents around it, if some are provided, even you going through the trouble to seek some, um, ensuring you have a checklist of requirements. So what Mm. is then the next step? Well, you'll be <laughs> relieved to hear I've got a, a shorter answer to that. Um, I'd simply ask the question, is this worth pursuing? Are you, are you sure you want to do this? Because very often once a team have expressed interest in, in, in things, the bid sort of gathers a momentum of its own, like we're doing this bid without anyone actually saying, do you know what, now we've looked at it, I think this is a bit of a waste of time. And I think one of the most useful things I can do is discourage people from wasting what could be many hours of time for a bid that they're actually not going to get. So I helped an engineering researcher on this and she was having trouble writing a bid. And she thought that the reason she was having trouble was she wasn't a very good writer and that she didn't know how to write bids. And when I looked at it, I thought, no, the reason you're having trouble here is you're not the right person for this bid and your work doesn't fit the specifications and frankly you're not going to get the money and I said to her you know it's up to you it's your bid but frankly I think the best thing to do is to drop it and she went away and thought about it and came back and said to me actually I've decided you're right and I'm I'm not going to carry on with the bid and she said you know I'm grateful because I do realize this has saved me several wasted hours of, of effort so just just asking is it worth pursuing is a helpful thing to do. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think that's very, very important, definitely. So fair enough, you decide that you are going to either go with it or not go with it. You'll take a close look. Yes, I'm still committed to, and I have the, I think from what you you say, it's more about, um, am I the right person for this? It's not about kind of just dismissing it because you don't have enough Mm. time to work on it. No, you're going to invest the time because you think you can get it in that respect. So if you take yes. that decision, what is then that what what is the next step for you? My next step is to work on I think what I would call project management. I think that's probably the best phrase yeah. for it. So very often when people engage us, uh, I think they assume that all of all that we're going to do is look at the language of the the writing of the bid. And we do that, certainly, but we also look at how things are being managed. And this is, I suppose, the consultancy side of our work, really, because very often when bids don't go very well, very often the problem is more to do with how the project is set up rather than necessarily to do with specific problems of um, writing and language. Mm. So the types of things I mean 
is scheduling tasks, which is often a complete disaster. And it leads to headaches and nervous breakdowns and everyone rushing around like headless chicken at the last minute. And that, I have to be honest, that's avoidable. There's nothing necessary in that process. That's just poor management. And in particular, it's something we've touched on in one of our other episodes, actually. If you're planning to have the document copied and proofread, that does have to be built into the editor or proofreader's schedule in good time. It's no good saying 45, 48 hours beforehand. By the way, could you proofread this? Mm. So it's partly about scheduling. It's also about clarifying the brief. In other words, I mentioned earlier that we actually work in many different guises when we're helping people with bids. And so the important thing is to say, well, how exactly do you want us to work what is it that you want us to do and what's it that you don't want us to do and then there's a very messy area to do with how the team works Uh, what I mean by that is deciding what the roles are within the team deciding how they're going to interact with each other what the hierarchy is and who the decision making maker is and obviously we can't tell clients how to do that but what we can do is advise them if we sense that things are not very clear Mm. and perhaps more clarity needs to be provided so i'll give you an example some of our clients work in a rather flat hierarchy it's like the opposite of a military you know there aren't people walking around with titles like general and colonel or major with different numbers of pips on their shoulder it's a flatter supposedly more democratic culture than this And that often means that when you propose things, there's a lot of discussion between people and the sort of decision emerges. The problem there is often these cultures are more hierarchical than people admit. Mm. So after there's been lots of discussion and the team have decided they'd like to do things one way rather than another, suddenly at the last moment, the most senior person says, no, 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 I don't agree with that. We're going to do it this way. And you find that all this time has been wasted. And so I always take the view that um, if there is in, if there is de facto a hierarchy, it one of the useful things we can do is try and suss out what that hierarchy is, <laughs> and then we can keep saying, "Well, what does so and so think about it?" Because we've worked out that that's a person who's actually going to make the decision in the end. Uh, so it's try it's really trying to get people to be a bit more candid about the culture that they work in. Wow. To be fair, I must admit that, like, you did an excellent job, Professor Anthony, summarizing, like, what project management is in few words, because <laughs> having been part of different teams before, it's it's really a mess, mm. and it takes a lot of time and effort and humbleness from the team members to yes. accept um, kind of arrangement that is not necessarily uh, very convenient to them at times. But I think if I take one point that is at the core of what you said as well particularly in the first half is the idea of discipline so um, discipline is you can get discipline but you have to be committed to kind of abide by discipline and that makes things much easier yes Um, yes great point okay so with all this in mind and hopefully on the table and going ahead with it what about the actual editorial work then from your end yeah so (laughs) at last we got the editorial work so um well I hope you don't mind if I say this is quite lengthy answer. So, so perhaps I could take you through three distinct points. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is to get the language right, the vocabulary and the tone. 
And that incidentally is where reading around, reading the context will help you work out the right tone. The key thing there is to echo the sponsor's language. So work out what language they speak and what sort of vocabulary they employ and then make it easy for them by employing the same vocabulary. So I'll give you a really simple example. Um, One researcher was bidding for an opportunity where the sponsor used the word alliances. They were keen on research that was was looking at alliances between organisations and she said, well, that's great because my, my research is all about partnerships. Well, yeah, it is great. I mean, if, if, if they, they're interested in alliances and your work's all about partnership, you probably know a lot about the things they want to know about. But avoid calling it partnerships because that's your word. You have to use the word alliances. So simply echoing people mm. is, is good. Interesting. Yes. The second point I'd make is the need to tell a story. And I think this sometimes surprises people, particularly a lot of our clients are working in quite a technical context in engineering and infrastructure and so on. And they're not trying to write a novel to win the Booker Prize. So they don't necessarily have a great deal of interest in storytelling. But it's very interesting how even in technical contexts, storytelling is powerful and it works. And I had to learn this, you know, I I wouldn't say that I'm a natural storyteller. I, I like argument and analysis. And I had to learn that actually I'm in the minority and most of the world are more interested in hearing the story. What I discovered was I didn't actually have to be brilliant at it. I didn't actually have to be a great storyteller. All I had to do was make an effort to put things in story form and people would sort of meet me halfway. And the story that you normally tell is a journey. How do you go from needs to benefits? Like there's a need to provide such and such a solution or or there's a need to solve a certain problem. And then, okay, let's start with that need and see how we can work out a solution and then spell out, well, if we provide that solution, what benefits is that providing to people? So we start with needs and we end with benefits and that's your story. Wow, very interesting. The third one will take quite a lot of explanation. So I (laughs) hope you've got a bit of patience. All right. Very often you have to explain your aims and objectives. Mm. And... There are several things that go wrong here. Um, first thing is people often have more than one aim. And I would advise anyone, I would say, be very careful about that. I'm not saying categorically that you shouldn't have more than one aim. But generally speaking, it's better to have one aim, something that unifies or integrates the project. If um, I think if you're asked to fund something and you've got a choice between two bids, one says, we're doing this thing, this one big thing, and if you give us some money, we'll do this one big thing. And the other one says there are four things, smaller things, and if you give us the money, we'll do these four smaller things. I think the one big thing gets the money. Mm-hmm. So I always try and push people to use a word like goal and, and just come up with, a you know, our goal is this. Mm-hmm. The second thing that goes wrong is people often have a number of objectives. Well, that's fine, but they often don't explain how the objectives are derived from the aim Mm. or the goal. So they say, our aim is this, and then they say, straight away, our objectives is this, and you get a series of bullet points. Mm. And you think, well, what have the objectives got to do with each other? Like, are they in chronological order? Are they... um, order of priority of a logical order what, what's what's how do i get from one objective to another what's the link between them but also 
if that's your goal, why do we need these particular objectives? Where did they come from? How did you arrive at those? I'm particularly severe on people who over rely on bullet points. So bullet points almost certainly has a role, have a role to play here. But if you ask yourself what a bullet point is, it's something that separates an item from the thing that goes above it and the thing that goes below it. I mean, that, that's what a bullet point is. That's the definition of a bullet point, isn't it? So if you're trying to produce a cogent and coherent bid with a flow to it, that's not really very helpful, is it? Because mm. you're using a technology that separates things from each other and then you lose the flow of the argument. So I certainly don't say to people, don't use bullet points. But what I say is don't rely wholly on bullet points when you're dealing with objectives and aims, but actually put sentences in between them, like the cement between paving stones on a path, so that there's a kind of continuous flow of argument for the reader. So those are those are the things. I mean, obviously, we do many other things mm. as well, but actually those are the things that we we tend to focus on in the editorial work. Those are things that come up a lot that make a big difference to the quality of the bid, I think. Wow, that's huge to be fair. Wow. Um, if I may, any recommendation to writers then um, either who want to join the editorial board or those like myself, for example, who would be an academic or professional who would like more insights on writing successful proposals, where would you um, advise us to go or where what to read? I'm going to mention two resources. Um, and I, as usual, we'll put the exact references into the show notes. Uh, we've produced a very straightforward series called Writing Protocols, which are postcard-sized practical resources. And on the back of a postcard, we always have links to further resources. And so we have one called um, Writing a Grant Proposal. Yeah. So we'll put the links in the show note to that. And also, there are various books on grant proposals, quite a lot of them I don't actually like very much. But um, there's one by Gerard Crawley and Ewan O'Sullivan. And it's the main title is The Grant Writer's Handbook. And the subtitle is How to Write a Research Proposal and succeed it's written uh, a lot of examples come from examples from ireland but i don't think that makes it exclusive uh, you know you don't have to be irish or in ireland working in an irish system to benefit from this um, and a lot of examples are from health but again you don't have to be working in a health system to benefit from this thank you so much professor for such an insightful first edition of um behind the scenes um i'm i learned a lot and i'm sure our audience very much appreciate all the insights you shared with us today too thank you very much well uh thank you Inji. it's been a pleasure thank you and thank you all for listening this was Inji musa with anthony haynes gray lit cafe is edited by dr bart hallmark and produced by frontinus limited Frontinus specializes in grey literature forms such as proposals, publications, papers, and reports. The music is from Handel's Water Music, courtesy of the United States Marine Band and Marine Chamber Orchestra. See you next time. Bye.